As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The World Cup semi-finals await... Argentina against Croatia and France against Morocco. Storylines everywhere, narratives galore. And on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, we're focused on, yeah, we're focused on the tactics, on the football itself, on how these games may play out and what's contributed to the semi-finalists' success up to this point. Joining me, Ali Maxwell, is the Athletic's tactics writer, Michael Cox. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. Snow on the ground in London. And World Cup semi-finals on the telly this week. It feels strange. Yeah, it still doesn't really feel like a, a World Cup to me, having been back here for the second half of this tournament. Enjoying the competition very much so. But yeah, in winter, it feels like more of a new novelty competition rather than a, a classic World <laughs> Cup to me. Are you saying this has got sort of Club World Cup vibes for you? It does remind me a bit of the 2000 Club World Cup when Manchester United went off to play Vasco da Gama and Corinthians and a couple of other sides while it was uh, very cold back in Britain. Kind of a little bit of an Olympics vibe as well, I think, in <laughs> in a sense. Not in terms of the weather, just in terms of it being all in one city and that kind of thing. But yeah, I love the semi-finals. I think the semi-finals often produces the best games in the World Cup. So I'm very much looking forward to this week. Uh, Mark Carey's here as well. Uh, Mark, you've been across so much in the last few weeks. Uh, yourself and Liam, I know, have been in the office poring over every facet of these games, tactics, data-wise. You must know every team's pass maps and touch maps off by heart now I, I think yeah that's that's exactly right I think I've spoken about this with, with someone else whereby it's actually quite difficult to look at the data for this because as I'm sure we'll come on to and we've spoken about before that sample size is is everything and it's just it's quite difficult to find trends so I think obviously Michael Liam and, and Akimo can find real trends in terms of tactics but data wise I'm quite sort of descriptive in my output of just showing where the pass maps were where the touch maps were and can't really identify quite as many uh, trends but it, <laughs> so it doesn't stop me trying well so many good match breakdowns from what were four pretty remarkable quarterfinals on the athletic site um this isn't going to be some kind of England fans therapy session. No, the tournament's not over. There's still four games left, one of them the third place playoff. We probably won't focus on too much, but we will keep doing what we do for the next week on this podcast. Uh, let's start with the elephant in the room, 
I wonder what the Portuguese phrase for elephant in the room is, guys. Big episode on Brazil a few days ago on Joga Benito 2022. Knocked out days later, Michael. The favourite's gone. So what happened? Let's start with the initial 90 minutes against Croatia. No goals. How come Brazil's attack never quite got going here? I think Croatia played well defensively. They defend proactively by keeping the ball for long periods and that obviously helps. But I think actually compared to four years ago, Croatia's individual defenders are a lot better. I thought the fullbacks were really good in this game. Um, both Rafinha and Vinicius were substituted off relatively early, which I think is to the credit of the Croatia fullbacks. Um, they've also got more speed at the back as well. I think they handled Richarlison very nicely. I know the goalkeeper made a couple of saves. But overall, I don't think Brazil did anything wrong. I think they were still getting into the right areas, kind of creating half chances. Um, I just think Croatia deserve a lot of credit for how they played as well. I think Juranovic was really aggressive on Vinicius Junior, did really well and was herring forward himself to kind of pose that threat. And it, it a bit like, I'm sure we'll come on to England and France, a bit in the same way down uh, Brazil's left, it looked like the best form of defence was the attack. So 47% of, of Croatia's attacking touches were on their right flank, which is the highest of the tournament so far for them. It also, I guess, staves off the, the threat of a switch to Vinicius Junior by attacking down that side if they were to lose the ball. But then also you think of Rafinha's able to to receive the ball on the switch from the other side. But they they stopped Brazil really getting into those isolated 1v1s, which we spoke about uh, last week. So, yeah, really aggressive in their, in their defence and attack. It's interesting how right side heavy they were, Michael. Perisic plays on the left wing for Croatia. So often seems there their go-to guy in the final third, get it to Perisic. And because he's so two-footed, he can normally get a cross off on either side. But actually, you know, if you look at the first half an hour, the first half of that game, Pasalic on the other side has more than twice as many touches as Perisic. An interesting tactical setup. Yeah, they don't really know who their best right-sided player is, Croatia. Whoever they play, I think, is more of a natural playmaker, kind of central midfielder or number 10, and always wants to come inside. I think, as Mark says, that did benefit them with, with Jovanovic going forward. I thought he was their best player by quite a distance. Um, but a funny side, Croatia. I mean, they've, they've got a good defence, really, really good midfield. I think even before the start of the tournament, we said it was maybe the best midfield trio on paper. They do just lack an attacking spark. They, they don't have a top-class centre-forward. Like I say, they don't really have a great right-sided player. And I'm just never convinced, really, they're going to score goals. Of course, the caveat to that is if you keep clean sheets or if you only concede one, you only need a goal from a you know a chance situation. And I think it was a bit of a fluky goal with a deflection, and and you can you can go through. But you look at their knockout record in the last couple of competitions. I mean, four times they've drawn and gone through on penalties. Once they've drawn after ninety minutes and then beaten England in, in extra time. Obviously, the final to France last time around, they, they lost relatively convincingly. So they've had six knockout games and not won any in 90 minutes. So they're quite a difficult side to to get hold of, really. Mm. I, I just, I don't mean to be too um, harsh about them because I think what they do, considering their population, is incredible. And I think the style of football, whether they've been a good side or, or not a, a good side over the last 20 years, they've always played positive football. But I can't help thinking it's a bit of a fluke that they've got to the semi-finals, two years or two World Cups running. <laughs> Mark, one man's fluky goal is is another's well-worked transition attack. Um, Croatia did exploit what were 
probably surprising gaps in Brazil's defensive structure, you know, having gone ahead just before halftime and extra time. And a lovely goal it was too, very much in keeping with some of the goals we saw in their previous game. Um, it, it all changed, didn't it? And is there an argument that Brazil just didn't approach defending their lead seriously enough? Yeah, it was everything we spoke about last week in terms of Brazil being so structured, like their defensive structure being so structured, rest defence, so being the yeah their defensive structure when they're in possession, the, the shape that they have when they're on the ball. And we spoke about last week how the fullbacks will tuck in, they'll create more of a midfield and they'll be they'll stave off against a, a transition. And it just didn't, yeah, it didn't happen at all in those final minutes. And there's a screenshot that I've seen where I think they committed four men ahead of the ball um, with, yeah, I think four minutes to go. And that was just before the goal as well. And you just think you don't need to to go and do that. You're 1-0 up. Game state is so important here. Just see out the final minutes. And it felt a little bit naive, should we mm. say, um, given especially how good they've been within that sort of rest defence throughout the rest of the tournament. So, yeah, completely agree with that that sentiment. Chichi felt that Brazil essentially created 10 chances that Croatia's goalkeeper was inspired and Brazil should have scored more, should have won that game. Croatia equalising with with one of their very few shots and it took a deflection to go in. Is it is it OK for Chichi to suggest that it's just one of those things? Yeah, I think it's fine. I actually think it's quite healthy. I think sometimes... Sides lose by a, a you know a narrow margin, and and people want a, a massive inquest. When actually, it's just one of those things. I think if this was a league game, we'd say yeah, Brazil deserved to win, and we're a little bit unlucky. But of course, when it leads to your elimination from a World Cup, the recriminations are are much uh, much stronger. And of course, Chiche has uh, has left his job. I think he was always going to leave, regardless of uh, of what happened. But it's a bit of a shame that. I mean, they've been a really good side throughout his time in charge. I think they've been pretty consistent. They've gone into both World Cups, I think, looking like the strongest team. I think for the first four or five games, probably have been the strongest team and then have been eliminated in slightly unfortunate circumstances. I do just think it's often one of those things at World Cups, yeah. I think as well, it's interesting you compare it to kind of league football because in tournament, well, in, typically in league football, things do even themselves out over a longer period. But as you say, in tournament football, that simply doesn't happen because there is no longer period. So things like luck are far more impactful and they are um, far more effective. So as I mentioned at the top of the, the episode, it does make things like expected goals, which we use as more of a predictive factor, far more difficult to interpret within a tournament because there is clearly, even in a full league season, there's not a, a real long enough, big enough data set to really draw conclusions from. You can still cheat XG at the team level across a domestic season. So think about what you can do across a tournament. So that's where things like luck um, are far more impactful, shall we say. There's no mean. There's no mean to revert <laughs> to. We are meanless in these tournaments. Uh, Michael, last one on Brazil. Uh, what's your take on no Neymar going number five in, in the shootout and more broadly this this discussion of the big names going number five? I struggle to agree with, with a strategy where there's a decent chance that the player won't even take the kick because the team could have lost before that point. Yeah, I'm not sure I have much more to add. I mean, it's it's a big risk. I think it's clear that the, the, the player going fifth in that situation, if it's your star player... And your regular penalty taker, I think it probably is about how they want the glory. Obviously, Neymar scored the winning penalty in 2016 in the Olympics in Rio. So in, on that occasion, it paid off. But yeah, it is a risk. And it does seem unnecessary, especially when a couple of, of players going ahead of you are 
you know, Rodrigo, pretty inexperienced, maybe a bit harsh for him to have to step forward first. I mean, it's such a shit. Neymar, about half hour earlier, had scored one of the best goals I've ever seen in the World Cup. And people are barely even discussing it. What, why, I mean, why, why did he love it so much? I, I just thought to, to pick up the ball where he did and play two on twos and go through the centre of a really well-organised compact team Neymar. and score, I, I just thought it was brilliant. Rodrigo returns it. Neymar, they're walking their way through. Neymar! There's been so few passing moves that have ended in goals that go through the centre of teams in this tournament. You know, at times I've struggled really to work out how teams are trying to work the ball into attacking positions because there's no space between the lines at this tournament. There's been very little dribbling out wide. Um, statistically, I think it's down by about a third. And so... What's been he's kind of <laughs> So he like, flips, he like flips both those things. He just carries the ball from a completely non-threatening position, two one-twos, and he's in on goal around the keeper. I just thought he was absolutely brilliant. I mean, if that... If that Petkovic shot gets deflected wide, Neymar's being spoken about as absolute hero. I think it's, I think it's incredible how how fine margins and bits of fortune can change not just how we talk about a team in a World Cup, but probably change how we talk about Neymar forever. I mean, he's you know not winning a World Cup is going to be a bit of a a big blow for a player who's been you know, so prominent for Brazil and, and, you know, the best player for a side that have gone into probably three World Cups as the favourite and he hasn't won one, you know, I just think it's a bit of a shame, really. Especially because he wasn't having the, the best game, per se, but that's <laughs> he, why you kept him on he the was, he was He was rubbish, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, let's be honest, he was absolutely terrible, particularly in the first half, you're right. Yeah, that's why you keep him on the pitch, isn't it, for that moment of magic. But um, on, on the note of the penalties, I think it... I looked into this because there's so much research on penalties and there is evidence to show that your best penalty taker should either go first or fourth. Um, first, because you're putting yourself with the best, giving yourself the best opportunity to get a, a goal, if you like, a penalty on the board, which I think is massively psychologically important for your team. Um, and fourth, because you're almost always likely to then still take one. With fifth, you're far less likely. But it's when there's sort of the pressure is more meaningfully impacting the penalty because you don't necessarily want to have your best uh, penalty taker first and then go kind of down so that your fourth best penalty taker is having the most, um, you know, is under the most pressure. So the conversion rate for the first three penalties for each team uh, in a study is 75%, 73%, and 73%. Penalty four goes down to 64% of the time and five, 65% of the time, which naturally makes sense. But if you were to have your best taker in at fourth, where you've got a very high chance they're going to take the penalty, but knowing that typically under the pressure that there's less conversion rate, you're more likely to maybe sort of beat that little statistic. Um, so I think if anyone yeah, was maybe asking Neymar to go earlier, I think maybe fourth or certainly first would, would have been the best. I absolutely love that. I think it makes complete sense. I think it's such a good example of data in football and being able to to run the numbers sometimes flying in the face of received wisdom and I think you know I think we should more or less take it upon ourselves with whatever influence that we have to try and change the narrative and 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 focus on the fourth penalty as the most important penalty we need to help change the discourse here so the fourth penalty in a shootout is the important penalty really and the first of course but not the fifth not the fifth Michael, I also find it fascinating and completely fair 
that we're talking about a World Cup semi-finalist in Croatia, runners-up at the last World Cup. The title of the piece that you've written about them is Are Shot Shy Croatia Actually Any Good? It, it just sums up the, the madness of knockout tournament football. And that comes with some confusion for football fans. We're used to league football. We're used to reversion to the mean. We're used to draws being draws and not having an outcome decided by penalty shootouts. It makes it must make for you guys talking about and writing about these teams quite confusing because naturally it feels right to celebrate teams that keep progressing, but you have to stay objective in your analysis as well. And you don't want to be seen as sort of sour grapes because England got that knocked out having played quite well. It's an interesting one for you guys to balance, I think. Yeah, it is. And Croatia are a difficult side to write about for, for the reasons I said earlier. But yeah, it's, it's it's knockout football. I mean, mad things can happen. And that's part of the fun of it, really. I mean, I'm not sure how often the, you know, the best team actually wins the World Cup. I think probably more than 50% of the time the best team doesn't win the World Cup. And uh, yeah, that's, that's just a big part of it. So Josip Juranovic, the Croatia player, quote after the game says, I can say we have the best midfielders ever. Brozovic, Modric and Kovacic, if they are in the game, we will control it 90%. Now, we could probably apply a sort of exaggeration filter to that. But is there, you know, is there a really strong point here, Michael? And and particularly as we move to talking about their semi-final against Argentina, Brozovic, Modric, and Kovacic up against Argentina's midfield three: Dupal, McAllister, Enzo Fernandez. Is that a, is that a huge strength heading into this semi-final? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think they're much better than um, Argentina's midfield three, particularly in terms of what they do with the ball. I mean, Argentina's midfield is a a talented, technically, no doubt about it. But I'd be amazed if Croatia didn't dominate possession here. One, because I think they have got the better players in midfield. And two, because I'm not really sure Argentina will be that fussed about dominating possession. So, yeah, it's they, they can control games as well as anyone. I think that's fair. Um, you know, Modric is still a really good player. Kovacic, I always want to see a little bit more from him in the final third in the attacking phase but he's still a great player. And Brozovic, I've always really liked as well. So it's no coincidence. I mean, Croatia have always produced good players and particularly really good number 10s and central midfielders and and players who can just put the team in charge. So, um, yeah, you've got to to admire um, Croatia. They always turn up and they're always positive. They always want to dominate possession. And that's been the case kind of before the obsession with possession with kind of Spain's dominance 10-15 years ago during that period and, and after that period so they, they've always got a, a pretty strong identity. I'm not offering much in the way of insight here but I just want to know what Juranovic was referring to when he said 90% does he mean that it's going to be 90% control or he has 90% confidence in the fact that they will control it I might need to to go and query that one. I think he's saying if Brozovic, Modric and Kovacic start 10 games together, then on average, they will control nine of them. Nice, nice. Um, Is he saying they'll get 90% possession? That'd <laughs> yeah. be, that'd be bold. But honestly, I do think there's quite an interesting aspect to this, talking about possession. Because, Michael, Argentina are strong favourites with the bookmakers to win the game, to progress. But from what you're talking about, it seems like Croatia may dominate the ball. It strikes me having not done research on this, that let's say at club level, very rare for the team that's likely to hold the ball for longer periods would be the underdog in that scenario because generally the way that club football is formatted is that the top teams have more of the ball. That's not going to be the case necessarily here and I think that's 
that's quite an interesting quirk to this. That is a good point. Yeah, hadn't considered that, but you're you're very much right. Okay, last thing on, on Croatia. Dalic, who I find hilarious in his post-match interviews when they've won, he's, he's so bullish, he's so confident, isn't he? Uh, uh, you know, makes makes no reference to the fact that uh, that they're not actually winning these football matches in 90 minutes or 120 minutes. Uh, talking about the, the penalty prowess, which may play a, a, a role here again. Dalit says, I believe we become favourites in penalty shootouts because our opponents know how good at them we are. It's almost like they have lost already. Uh, Michael, do you buy that as anything other than bluster? Uh, or is it overdoing the importance of certain variables on a penalty shootout's outcome? I think it probably does help. Yeah, I mean, they, they won't go into penalty shootouts being fearful. I think they'll go into it pretty confident and maybe it does influence the opposition as well. So, yeah, I think it probably does make a make a big difference. It's worth noting as well that Croatia, they do have every reason to be confident because if I'm not mistaken, they're the only country in the history of the World Cup to have taken as many as four penalty shootouts and won every single one. So if we were talking about being emphatic um, and speaking in hyperbole, then Dalic does have a point. Okay, well, they're up against Argentina, who got past uh, the Netherlands, also by way of a penalty shootout. Uh, Let's start by mentioning the fact that the tactical battle, to my eyes, Michael, was very much won by Argentina. That was after Louis van Gaal was was quite pleased with himself openly for having won the tactical battle against Greg Barhalter in the USA in the previous round. Uh, Not the case here. Scaloni's uh, making some some smart changes here uh, and and winning the tactical battle at 0-0 for sure. Talk me through Argentina's approach. Yeah, they went 5-3-2, pretty much matched the the Netherlands shape, um, gave themselves a spare man at the back. Uh, Fernandez kind of sat on Gakpo in the number 10 role. Yeah, and I think it worked very well. The thing I liked was that the wingbacks adjusted. They didn't just play as, as, as they would as fullbacks in a four. They pushed on really well. Molina scored the opener from that great Messi pass. And Acuna won the penalty for the, the second goal scored by Messi from the spot. Um so yeah, they've they've been very adaptable. They've played three formations from the outset: four four one one, four three three, and now five three two. They're pretty reactive. I think they are pretty negative, if we're being honest, for a you know a real contender to to win the World Cup. But it is working for them. I mean, they they are just happy to to defend, to give themselves a spare man at the back, and to a certain extent, to let Messi do his thing in the final third. I think in terms of Scaloni outsmarting. Van Gaal as well. I think Michael identified it really well in a in a piece last week about the Netherlands' extreme man marking approach. So any one of the centre backs would sort of take it in turns to step out and be kind of well beyond the halfway line at, at times to get tight to their opposite number, whoever that may be. Um, I think that the first goal for Argentina kind of in, on a smaller scale happened as a consequence of that. So identifying that Ake in this instance was going to get pulled out. I think he got pulled out to Molina initially, then got passed on to Messi. And that gap that it was a very small gap that Ake had vacated was exposed by Messi's granted absolutely ludicrous pass. But only had Ake stayed in that position, you'd imagine that he would have maybe intercepted it and a midfielder could have been the one to Mm. close down Messi. So small tactical things, but it was that kind of gap that was exposed that, that led to that first goal. I was listening to the radio following this game and a Dutch journalist on on Five Live, Michael, was about as critical of Van Gaal as I've ever heard a journalist be about a manager uh, and I think probably reflecting the, the feelings of the Dutch nation they, they take 
managers' tactics pretty seriously, managers' strategy pretty seriously, it's fair to say. Um, what do you think of the criticism specifically about Van Gaal having ruined everything here for, for, for the Netherlands? What was his argument? I, I don't really know what the uh, His argument is. was that it, it's, it was pretty classic stuff really it's it's never the way a Dutch team should play uh, it was too negative um, all the players have been brought up playing a certain kind of way and to then go completely away from that um, when they are you know quite uniform in their academies is just a complete dereliction of duty basically from a from a Dutch manager I just don't think they're a great side to be honest I don't think individually they're particularly good in in certain positions and I think when you don't have much time on the training ground as Van Hal doesn't as all international managers do not you you have to kind of simplify things and I think in some ways he's got the best out of the players I mean I I thought the way they played against the US was brilliant the first goal they scored probably the best team goal of this World Cup I think Gakpo's had a really good tournament been freed up played a a couple of slightly different positions they look good after Dupai um, kind of returned to full fitness and returned to the team I just don't think they did much wrong, really. They, they lost on penalties, you know. They went a bit direct, of course, towards the end of this game, but worked pretty well. There was a strategy. There was a, a theory behind what they were doing. So yeah, I can't really see much criticism of Van Hal as merited, really. I understand there's a ideological element to the um, to the criticism rather than a specific tactical thing, but yeah, they lost on penalties to a good team. I, I can't really see why he'd be too upset about that. From an Argentina point of view, fairly alarming the way they threw away their two-goal lead and, and the direct play that you've referenced there being at the heart of it. Uh, do Croatia have it in them to go full Veghorst? <laughs> well, they haven't got a top-class attacker, but they do have attackers in, in reserve who are probably roughly as good as the starting attackers. I mean, Petkovic came on and made a really good impact against Brazil. The skill to beat two oh. Brazil defenders for the, the Brozovic chance mm. was absolutely brilliant. His, his movement is very good when the ball is wide. He does like getting on the end of crosses. So, yeah, maybe not full Veghorst, but uh, they have got options up the sleeve. I mean, as much as Veghorst did come on and make a massive, massive impact, just to be slightly critical of, of Argentina, they did pretty much lose their heads in those, well, in the final half an hour, really. So starting from the 80th minute onwards. So it was a little bit down to Argentina's ill-discipline that I think the Netherlands got joy. As much as Veghorst is just a cheat code because he's just so imposing um i think it was a little bit of, of argentina's own doing there as well um, and michael do we now know enough about scaloni's argentina to be able to predict another switch in formation you know if he matched up netherlands by switching out an attacker in papu gomez for, for lisandro martinez a center back can we expect given croatia play 4-3-3 an attacker to come back in and, and probably martinez unfortunately to miss out and uh, horses for courses approach yeah, I'd be surprised if they went for a back five. I just can't really see the need against this Croatia team. I think they should be trying to compete in midfield. I wouldn't be surprised if they went back to 4-4-1-1, but played the midfield for pretty narrow to really compete with um, Croatia in the centre midfield and, and kind of hope that frees up Messi a little bit to um, to get space between the lines. So, yeah, I think there will be another switch in formation. I guess the only thing that I'm I'm thinking, based on what you said just earlier about Molina... And the way that his goal came about with Messi picking him out and, and him making that deep, wide run in behind. Weirdly, the image that flashed up in my head was the old Barcelona team that dominated for so long, where Dani Alves, albeit they played a back four, you know, he attacked incredibly high up the pitch. And those deep runs in behind 
when teams were denying space through the middle were, were quite often what unlocked defences. Xavi normally playing the ball over the top, Dink over the top, Alves, and then the defence on the turn struggling with, with his cutbacks. Messi generally the one who would, who would fire it in. It made me think a little bit about this Argentina side if they are going to be clogged up in the centre of the pitch, and if Messi really is going to be dealing in very, very tight spaces, maybe having the full-backs or wing-backs really high and being able to build up a head of steam to make those runs in behind could be the, you know a real avenue of attack for them. And I wonder if having the third centre-back there allows them to do that with a bit less fear. It, it's, as is always the case, it's an interesting part of the, 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 the decision that Scaloni has to make. Yeah, I, I've made similar notes there. I think it's absolutely accurate in that regard. And I think we spoke about it previously in, in other episodes, how Argentina do kind of just funnel towards central areas where it does get congested. And I think that was their undoing for probably the first game and a half of their, their group stage where they just didn't have that natural width because they had inverted wingers and there was rarely uh, a fullback overlapping or, as you say, going beyond the, the back line. So if it were to be a three at the back or a five at the back, you could yeah, perceive that as maybe a negative move, a bit more of a defensive move. But for the exact reason you say, Ali, I think it could be far more attacking in that regard to get someone high and wide, um, especially on that right-hand side. Michael, who have been Argentina's standout players outside of Messi? I've liked Enzo Fernandez in the holding role. I think he's uh, since he came into the side, he's played very, very deep at times, almost like an extra centre-back. Um, but he's good on the ball as well and he's given some structure and discipline to the midfield. I completely agree with Mark about them losing their heads uh, late on in that game against the Netherlands and I thought the biggest culprit was Paredes who I actually really like at club level. I think he's a really good distributor from deep positions but he came on and he was just diving into stupid challenges really. So if I was an Argentina fan, I wouldn't want to see him again. I'd want Fernandez to... Uh, to continue in the holding role. And, you know, after Paredes came on, Fernandez had to push a little higher, which I didn't think suited him as well. So, yeah, he's he's for me, he's been um, a bit of a revelation in this tournament. So this game on Tuesday night, Croatia and Argentina going head-to-head in the World Cup semi-final. Uh, Michael, just to finish us off, just tell me what you expect this game to, to look like. What for you are the, the sort of top lines tactically that will decide the game? I think Croatia will dominate possession and I think Argentina will be really dangerous through messy kind of encounter attacking situations um yeah i'd favor argentina looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard it right you can talk to a real human in customer service anytime Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Genuine tilt in the axis of world football. Because Morocco have smashed through that glass ceiling. France, Morocco is the other semi-final. Uh, Moroccan, the, the first African semi-finalists ever in the World Cup. Michael, I've got your words pre-tournament ringing in my ears. You said you were going to focus specifically on the African nations at the World Cup and you had a, a good feeling about how one or some of them might do. Morocco semi-finalists, were they the ones that you thought were going to do this out of the African sides? Not particularly. They wouldn't have been bottom of the list. Um, I quite like Senegal coming into the tournament, to be honest. Um, yeah, that big article about African sides is getting submitted today. I had three possible deadlines after the groups. It was basically going to go out when... They'd all been eliminated. And I had three possible deadlines in my mind after the group stage, after the second round or after the quarterfinals. Didn't expect any of them to get to the semifinals. Um, but they've been, I mean, they've kept clean sheets. That's that's the obvious thing to say about Morocco. They've been really, really well organised defensively. Their performance against Spain was probably the most compact team I've ever seen. I mean, there was literally 12 yards between front and back for a lot of that game. And that's judging by the kind of strips of of grass, which are kind of 12 yards each. And Naziri was just really, really deep in that game and, and really does his job well without the ball. And of course, is a good focal point and scored that, I thought, pretty good header actually against Portugal. I know it was a goalkeeping mistake, but and he was a very brave header. And they just use the ball so well when they win it. The transitions, um, you know, the two central midfielders just storm forward really well. Positive first passes out the back. They've, they've, I mean, they've been very defensive, but at the same time, they've really been a joy to watch. I think they're quite a, just quite a fun team, Morocco. When you said they're the most compact team you think you've ever seen, my first thought was, is this quite big Atletico Madrid 2014 vibes? Yeah, I can see that. They've got some elements of that. And they do break forward similarly as well. So uh, yeah, I can I can see that comparison. And what what about in attack? Uh, they've scored goals in a, a few different ways. It seems like they're definitely a, a net positive from set pieces, and and that Michael can make a big difference in in tight low margin games. And if you're a team that only keeps clean sheets and is a net positive from set pieces, you're going to win a lot of football matches. Um, how exactly did they attack Portugal as well as as make sure that they kept them at bay? The, the way the central midfielders played, I thought was really impressive. You know, they're quite deep without possession, but uh, Unahi and Amala, both really good at carrying the ball forward. Um, and also that the fullbacks as well can can push forward. We know about Hakimi uh, in particular down the right. They're, they're just really dangerous. So I guess it was quite a, a classic counter-attacking game plan, but they do commit players forward in the counters. You know, it's not just kind of the front three. In fact, they end up in a funny shape really where sometimes the wide players are tracking the opposition fullback so deep that they almost end up in kind of a back six and then the central midfielders are actually still pressing quite high at times so I feel like the central midfielders are always in a position to break forward and they've done that really well. Mark I know that uh, one of a bit of Liam's analysis was about 
big switches of play. Basically, Morocco um, versus most of the other teams in the tournament is something that they clearly work on, particularly from fullback to opposite side winger and um, Bufal and Ziak just trying to get them in positions 1v1 against fullbacks where you know they've been really really good at times yeah I think Liam noted that only Portugal and, and South Korea have attempted more switches of play than Morocco in this World Cup um, which is even more impressive considering how little possession they actually have Morocco I think they average about a third of the, the possession across all the matches so it's because I think of their strength in in wide areas. Michael mentioned their their fullbacks as well are very strong on the ball as well as off the ball. Um, but their strength in in those attacking wide areas with Buffal and and Zh, what they want to get the ball quickly as possible to isolate their their opponent in a one v one. So they have to play direct, I guess, kind of from back to front, but also across the pitch as well. And I think Buffal especially, I think I mentioned this before on this podcast that he's been fantastic all all tournament. Um, in terms of his dribbling side of things, taking on his man and if if not actually being successful in that, then winning a free kick and getting the team up the field, I think has been really, really useful. And, and Ziyech is probably less, we know what his sort of profile is, but he's less of a, a dribbler maybe, but he's got the the vision and the, the execution to to pick a pass or a, a cross for the likes of uh, Enaziri. So I think as well on that note, Ahmed uh, Walid has done a great piece on, on Ziyech, which I think was out yesterday, um, which people should go go and read as well but it's it's definitely um by design should we say it's not by luck and i think that yeah that that transition um approach and attack isn't to be underestimated we talk a lot about their defensive structure and defensive discipline which is absolutely true but i think i mean by this stage by the semi-final we shouldn't underestimate it. everyone should be aware of it but i think teams have underestimated just how strong and efficient morocco are in attack Michael, it's an interesting one down the right side for Morocco. Hakimi, the right back. Ziyech, the right winger. I want to apply a bit of thought based on the England-France game. Um, you wrote about how uh, you know all the all the discussion pre-game was about how England would stop Mbappe. Uh, as it was, that game did play out down Mbappe's side quite a lot, but not necessarily in the way that, that people thought. It was it was England who really put pressure on France's left side in attack. That bodes quite well for Morocco, whose two star men are their right back and their right winger. Will they have watched that game, I don't want to say licking their lips, but with great interest as 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 how England approached it? Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's going to be a different situation maybe because England didn't actually attack with their right back. I mean, Walker stayed inside and it was Henderson going across. Whereas you think that Morocco will want to push Hakimi forward. Of course, Hakimi and Mbappe know each other at club level. I gather are very good friends as well. So they'll probably have to drop someone back to kind of cover for Mbappe. Um, have to wait and see quite how they play that. But yeah, I thought the left side of France's defence was really poor, actually. I thought Hernandez struggled massively against Saka, just kept on conceding fouls, really. And of course, barged over Mason Mount in, I thought, completely unnecessary circumstances for that late penalty. And I thought Upper Meccano was really dodgy as well, just desperate to kind of get too tight to Kane and try and nick the ball from in front of him when sometimes he just needed to stand off two yards and hold his ground so yeah I mean the the left side of France's side doesn't look defensively solid at all um Mm. I think that would be a real concern I thought the right was pretty good Varane didn't really have any problems I thought Koundé did a really good job against Foden who was pretty quiet um but yeah the left side of France's defense looks very shaky I feel like the the post-match analysis of England one, France two has been a bit of a mess in from an English perspective. It's always going to be the case. Um, so 
try and help me out here because it's I think it's obviously difficult to separate uh, emotion after games like this um, and there are a few different narratives that have taken hold um what's your general review of England France because it feels like the piece that you've written suggests England and Southgate winning the tactical battle but going out so was it just down to finishing yeah, I think so. Obviously, England missed a penalty, and I think if Kane scores that, two all was a pretty fair scoreline. I think England actually could have had maybe one other penalty and another couple of free kicks in dangerous situations. France, has, as far as I'm concerned, they scored one absolutely brilliant goal for sure. Many, I think it's actually quite an underrated goal. I know it's maybe not the most spectacular long-range goal you'll ever see, but in terms of the technique, I don't think you'll see many more difficult strikes to execute from almost a standing start, having to kind of whip the ball across I thought it was superb and then the second goal I think Giroud gets quite lucky with that header it comes off Maguire not sure it was going in actually so yeah I mean France started as the favourites I mean it's perfectly possible that the you know the underdog can get their tactical plan right and still lose the game and I think to a certain extent that was that was true here I think England neutralised Mbappe by and large and actually exploited the fact he doesn't really defend much so I thought it was a good plan and uh, it comes down to to details and individual contributions and England didn't quite have enough to get over the line but I don't think I don't think the the tactical flat, uh, plan was was flawed at all but of course after that incredible goal he also gave away a penalty which was a sort of uh, mark against him uh, Michael more broadly who were the best performers for France in the quarterfinal I thought Griezmann was fantastic close to being the best player in this tournament for me alongside Messi um he's just adapted to this newish central midfield role really well I actually think Lloris had a good game. I thought his save from Kane was massively underrated. He was so quick off his line to shut him down and actually really reached up to 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 block the ball. I thought that was a magnificent save. Um, so yeah, those two I think did well. But I think there were more below par performers for France than real stars. I think even, I know Giroud scored the winner. I thought he was actually marshaled pretty well by England's centre-backs. Sure, many scored a great goal, but really clumsy tackle for that first penalty. Like I say, the left side of defence was was a bit of a shambles. Didn't think Dembele was that good. Rabiot looked a bit ragged, being dragged around by Henderson and Saka. So I don't think too many France players did play that well, to be honest. I, I do agree that Griezmann was great. And I think throughout all of this tournament, he hasn't been... Kind of the, the question you're asking, like who has been the standout one? He hasn't been the standout one to maybe score the goal or obviously he had the, the cross for Giroud's goal but he hasn't been the one to have a kind of a star moment but he's just been so consistent and solid throughout the whole tournament that I think he's just deserving of, of praise and normally with in terms of touches of the ball you normally get your centre-backs as the the most active uh, players but no France player had more touches uh, than Griezmann's 58 in that game so it shows that he was just kind of the the metronome uh, throughout and obviously his delivery for that Giroud goal was just fantastic and he drifted a few times towards that left touch line and it was obviously that chance that was uh, proven to be decisive but again I think we've spoken about it in, on this podcast previously of just how good he is off the ball as as well as on the ball he's been really disciplined in sort of filling in and plugging gaps as well as just kind of floating around either side um, on the ball so it's kind of one where you want to watch him for about 10 minutes whatever happens and just see just how effective he is because he, he has been brilliant this tournament. Interesting case study in terms of just player development Michael and and having to adapt to different tactical roles over time Griezmann has been a few different types of player in his career so far yeah he has I mean incredible tactical evolution I remember him coming through as a kind of pacey wide forward 
Then as a a second striker, I suppose, for Atleti. At times, felt like he was leading the line. He's played as a number 10. Didn't really see this transition coming. Um, but yeah, he's been absolutely excellent for them. Okay, so France are strong favourites for this game. I guess we can expect them to have most of the ball here, Michael. Does that suit them better uh, than the, the sort of outlook of the game against England? I don't know. I think they can play in either manner, really. I think they're good on the counter-attack or they can dominate possession. Um, I mentioned earlier that there hasn't been that much dribbling at this tournament, but France have got two very good dribblers in Mbappe and, and Dembele out wide. So I think they're flexible, aren't they? They're, they're just a really good team and, and they can play in either manner. It feels like uh, for Morocco, there's something of a blueprint that's been set by England for a few of the questions that France ask of you, particularly when it comes to Mbappe. Mark, it wasn't just what Kyle Walker and Henderson and Saka were doing. Liam noted as well just about the difference in how England pressed France's centre-backs in in build-up, basically um, really strongly pressing uh, France's left centre-back when uh, Upper Meccano, when he was on the ball uh, and, and, and really letting Varane, if he wanted funnel the ball to the right rather than to the left that's something else to watch here yeah it was it was a clear pressing trigger um and Liam outlines it really neatly in in his piece where you can see that when the ball is played out to to Upamecano Henderson was really stepping out from midfield and sprinting towards him and and trying to disrupt him even if he couldn't necessarily win the ball back just putting him under pressure and I think obviously then stopping the ball getting to Hernandez and stopping the the build-up shifting to to that left-hand side and I think that the, the narrative that was going on before the England game was how do you stop Mbappe? And I think it kind of showed clearly that you try and stop Mbappe or you try and stop France's left side by stopping the source to that left-hand side and trying to sort of nip it in the bud early on. So it was very much geared towards that, um, trying to keep Meccano's head down rather than allowing him to get his head up. I think in the first maybe 10 minutes, I think he played one ball over the top and Liam and I both noted that that was, that was a problem straight away. And I think that after that, it was pretty much kind of kept at bay by, as I say, stopping at source rather than allowing Mbappe to get the ball because it, it is very difficult to stop him once he's in full flow. So what do you do? You stop him from getting it in the first place. Well, I'm hoping for a Sofiane Amrabat masterclass here. We'll wait and see what happens. Argentina, Croatia and France, Morocco to come over the next few days. We will take a look back at them in the next podcast and preview the World Cup final. Uh, Michael, any strong instincts about which teams we may be previewing for the final? I'd fancy France against Morocco. Uh, I really enjoyed watching Morocco, but I do think France are a good team. I'm less sure about the other game, to be honest. I just, I never really think Croatia will win these games and they often do. So um, I'd quite like an Argentina-France final just because having the same final again would just feel a bit weird to me and I just want to see different games. So yeah, if Morocco go through, great. But if not, I'd go, I'd hope for an Argentina-France final, I think. The predictive models from a data perspective would just be completely broken if it becomes a Croatia uh, Morocco final it's just no I don't think anyone would have called it I don't know what the bookmakers would have said either but um, yeah I, I really would like to see an Argentina France final just for for something yeah novel and just to see obviously all the best players on show good well let's hope for some interesting entertaining semi-finals we'll be back again in a couple of days to talk about them so make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed getting every episode as soon as it lands and make sure you're signed up to The Athletic as well I think Michael's written something like 
30, 35 pieces since the start of this tournament. Uh, and he is just one small but very important cog uh, in the wider athletic machine. So much good analysis and, and storytelling on site as well. And you can join for just £2 or $2 a month for 12 months if you head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. So sign up today. Uh, make sure you listen to us next time. And thanks for listening to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The Athletic.